0: Thanks for joining us today. We are so excited you're here. Today I have a case for you that I have had so much fun researching.
1: It's interesting when we do come across a case that totally sucks us in.
0: hmm I just couldn't stop researching this one. There were so many rabbit holes. I always find this about the cases that we talk about from the past. Reading old newspaper articles and searching through 100-year-old censuses are right up my alley.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is a very much you thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You like those old-timey cases.
0: I do. What isn't all that fun is talking about the death of a sweet six-year-old, though. And that's what we will be discussing today. Oh, no. Yeah. So, listeners, here's your trigger warning. We will be discussing the death of a child today by two of the most inapt and dastardly criminals. This duo tormented the Greenlease family and it all started for them on September 28th, 1953. The Greenleases were a very wealthy and prominent family in Kansas City in the 1950s. Robert C. Greenlease, Sr. was a successful Cadillac dealer with a personal worth over tens of millions of dollars. Robert had been raised on a horse farm, but left the farm to work with his uncle at the Weber Engine Company at a young age. He studied engines and designed his own car, the Kansas City Hummer, in his early career. Oh, wow. He actually only made four of them, but he did gain a huge appreciation for a finely built car and latched onto the Cadillac brand pretty quickly afterwards.
1: Well, and to say he only built four cars, like who can build a car? I know. Not many people.
0: I thought it was so ingenious. Over the years, through hard work and philanthropy, Robert had become the Midwest's largest dealer and distributor of Cadillac and General Motors. In 1953, he and his second wife, Virginia, lived in Mission Hills, Kansas, The most elite suburb in the Kansas City area with their two children, Virginia Sue and Robert Cogsgrove Jr. From the moment that he was born on February 3rd, 1947, everyone affectionately called him Bobby. And he was the apple of his mother and father's eye. And it sounded like pretty much just about everyone else who had the privilege of meeting him. He was absolutely adored. And it was said that he was a little boy of pure innocence. He was also the epitome of a boy and was always filled with life and pep and loved to meet new people. He loved his two dogs and his pet parrot, Polly, and he frequently would sneak out into his backyard and leave food for wild animals.
1: Oh, he sounds like the sweetest little boy ever.
0: He did sound like the sweetest boy. When he was old enough and began to attend school, he loved learning to spell and work with numbers and he excelled in his schoolwork. He sounded like just the most amazing little boy. It was Robert's second marriage, and while he was an older father, at 65 when Bobby was born, he absolutely doted on his children. All of them. Robert had an older adopted son, Paul, from his first marriage, who was much older than his two half-siblings. Robert's children didn't want for anything, but they were also taught to mind their manners and be respectful. Robert was a man of his word in his personal life and his business dealings. A man's word and handshake were a sacred thing to him. The family had the most beautiful reputation of being honest and genuinely generous with their friends, family, and the community at large. They were active members in the community and were devout Catholics. Bobby and his siblings were instilled with love, kindness, generosity, and a deep faith in God. Robert took an active role in his young son's life, which I think speaks volumes to the kind of man he was. He was 71 when Bobby was an active six-year-old, and he had the means to pay other people to play with him. Instead, though, he was the one to play hide-and-seek in their backyard with the boy and take him for rides in the Cadillac.
1: Oh, I can't even imagine at 71. It's hard enough at our ages sometimes to get down on the floor and play with little kids. But he just loved his children. He loved being around them. This just sounds like the picture-perfect white picket fence scene
0: from 1950s. And their house looked like that. It just sounded all so perfect. And to complete that perfect scene, just before returning to school in the fall of 1953, the Greenleases toured through Europe and had a cherished family vacation. None of them would realize until later just how cherished it would become to them.
1: Aw, that is really sad because we just never know when those
0: last moments really are. But it was incredible that they did have that time that they could then look back on. A tender mercy for sure. Mm hmm. Around lunchtime on September 28, the Greenleases' residents received a call from the French Institute of Notre Dame de Sion in Kansas City, Missouri. It was their son Bobby's school asking about how his mother was doing. Virginia Greenlease, who answered the phone, was completely confused by this question. She was just fine. The nun explained that she had been told by Virginia's sister shortly before 11 that Virginia had fallen ill while the two of them were shopping at the Country Club Plaza and had been rushed to the hospital. What? That is why her sister had come to collect Bobby from school as Robert went to the hospital. Oh, no. His aunt had come to collect Bobby so that he could be taken to his mother's bedside. (gasps) And of
1: course you would trust her sister. And in the 50s, they wouldn't have had the strict protocol that they do nowadays about giving permission. But if this is your sister, you would be trusting her, I would think.
0: Well, that was the story that the woman told that she was her sister. Oh, she's not even her sister? No, not at all. But like you mentioned, they didn't have those strict policies in schools like we do today. Oh, she must have felt sick. Her heart, I'm sure, hit the floor when she heard this news. It was a shock to the whole family, and they quickly realized that their precious boy had been kidnapped. (gasps) Something that had never occurred to them as a possibility. Even though they were quite wealthy, they never thought they would be a target.
1: No, they wouldn't. And even the people at the school, I can't imagine how they would have felt after knowing they had let
0: this boy leave with a dirt bag. They had actually collected the little boy for the dirt bag. The nuns at the school completely believed that the woman in her early 40s with red hair was Bobby's aunt. They had even prayed with her in the chapel for Virginia's speedy recovery while Bobby was fetched from his classroom. Not once were they ever suspicious. Their belief was further cemented when Bobby willingly took the woman's hand when she was presented as his auntie and followed the sister's instructions to go with the woman to go and see his mother. The nun said the boy showed no hesitation as he climbed into the waiting taxicab. It had only taken a woman six minutes to kidnap a child. Oh, and so did he actually know her? He didn't. Oh, my goodness. He was just so trusting. Mm-hmm. The Greenleases and many others have speculated about why Bobby would go so willingly with a stranger, but he had always been taught to respect adults and do as he was told. The nuns, who he was taught to trust, had given him the information that he should go with this woman, who was his aunt, and so he had just blindly and innocently not questioned anybody, not even his kidnapper.
1: And he thought he was going to go see his mom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's horrible. Horrible.
0: And again, he's six. He's not thinking that there's any bad people in his world. He hasn't been exposed to anything in his little life. No. And a
1: lot of time, these dirtbag duos will use the woman to lure a child to be able to kidnap and harm them because we tend to trust
0: women a little bit more
1: because of their stereotypical mothering and nurturing
0: dispositions. And I think that that completely played into this case. And that's why this woman was used to collect the child. The family flew into a frenzy trying to locate who had taken Bobby. Question after question was asked and not answered. The cab company was questioned, but they didn't know anything more than that they had picked up the woman at the cab company and driven to the school. There, the cab driver had been asked to wait for them, and the driver didn't know where the two had gone after he had dropped them back off at Kratt's drugstore parking lot. Word spread quickly that Bobby had been kidnapped and family and friends along with the police assembled at the Greenlease's estate. The FBI would later enter the case officially as well. When a friend of Robert's, Arthur Eisenhower, the incumbent president's brother, heard about the kidnapping, as the executive vice president at the Commerce Trust Company, he began to set aside $100,000 to use in a ransom. He wanted to be able to help his friend as quickly as possible. He could never imagine that the requested ransom would be six times that amount.
1: Whoa. And that's a lot of money in the 1950s.
0: It is. A ransom note postmarked September 28, 6 p.m. was delivered at 8 p.m. that night. The ransom note was improperly addressed to 2600 Verona in Kansas City, not 2920 Verona Road in Mission Hills, Kansas. It was close enough to the actual address that the letter still found its way to the Greenleys' home.
1: In just two hours, that's actually impressive. Mm-hmm.
0: But there was news out already that Bobby had been taken. Uh, so people were paying attention. With poor grammar, the letter read, Your boy has been kidnapped. Get 600000 in 20s and 10s, federal reserve notes from all 12 districts. We realize that it takes a few days to get that amount. Boy will be in good hands. When you have the money ready, put ad in Casey Star. M will meet you in Chicago next Sunday, signed Mr. G. Do not call the police or try to use chemicals on bills or take numbers. Do not try to use any radio to catch us or boy dies. If you try to trip us, your wife and your child and yourself will be killed. You will be watched all of the time. You will be told later how to contact us with money. When you get this note, let us know by driving up and down Main Street between 39 and 29th, with a white rag on car aerial. The note continued on the other side of the paper. If you do exactly as we say and try no tricks, your boy will be back safe within 24 hours after we check money. Deliver money in army duffel bag. Be ready to deliver at once on contact. The letter was signed M, and then underneath the signature, it had 400,000 in 20s, 200,000 in 10s. Whoa, that is wild. $600,000 Six hundred thousand is such an exorbitant amount of money at that time. It's almost seven million now.
1: Seven million in twenties mm-hmm. and tens? Yes. How many duffel bags would that even take? It took one. They'd actually measured it. We'll get there. Really? All that fit
0: mm-hmm. in one duffel
1: bag? Oh, when I see someone walking with a big duffel bag now on the street, I'm going to be like, there could be seven million dollars in twenties and tens in there. That's right. Whoa! And did they have seven million dollars? To be able to give for the ransom?
0: Yeah, the family was quite wealthy. Okay. Not at their immediate disposal, of course. No, but. I thought it was shocking that a banker who knew finances and knew the worth of a dollar and knew how wealthy his friend was thought, okay, their son's been taken, we're expecting a ransom, let's set aside 100000 and it was six times that amount that these people were demanding.
1: Right. Well, because it sounds like 100000 would be just under a million today. Mm. Yeah. So that's a lot of money, just even the 100000
0: Yeah. It was the highest ransom ever demanded at the time.
1: Oh, I believe it. Even now that's a high
0: ransom. It was huge. And the family was in complete shock. They would choose to follow the instructions in the letter and keep police interaction at a minimum during the negotiations with the kidnapper. This decision was probably made in light of several other events that Robert knew of. In 1932, 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh had been kidnapped and later died at the hands of their kidnapper when police got too close. Robert was also aware that a year after that, Mary McElroy had been kidnapped in Kansas City, Missouri. When her family dealt quietly with the kidnappers, the girl was returned safely once her $30,000 ransom was paid. It would be a hard decision to either involve the police or not involve the police. And I'm not sure which one I would choose. Yeah, I don't know. I think no one can
1: say what they would choose until you're in that situation. And I would say you just go with your gut Mm -hmm. and pray that you're making the right choice.
0: Right. Because I can see reasoning for both. Well, for Robert, he chose to believe that if he did what the kidnappers instructed him to do, that Bobby would be returned. And I think it goes along with his business style.
1: Right. And it's a little bit safer to trust than to bluff.
0: Yeah. He believed his kidnappers' word. And after all, what was money, even 600000 when compared to his son? Oh, it's nothing. No. So he was ready just to hand it all over. Yep. The Greenleases decided to have three of their very close associates, Robert Letterman, Norbert O'Neill, and Stuart Johnson, to act as proxy for the family in the negotiations with the kidnappers. And I thought this was brilliant. I think it would be impossible to keep my emotions in check while talking to somebody who had taken my child and was threatening to harm them. Yeah, that's true. I never even thought about that. And so they assigned these three people that they trusted to negotiate for them. Smart. hmm With the help of Arthur Eisenhower, Robert secured the requested funds, 400000 in 20s and 200000 in 10s. The serial numbers of the bills were meticulously recorded by over 80 bank employees and packaged for the ransom. It was done in a way that no one particular employee knew the exact amount that they were assembling. When packaged in its duffel bag, the 600,000, wrapped and neatly tied in bundles, weighed 85 pounds.
1: Whoa. Can you imagine barely being able to lift a duffel bag because it's so full of money?
0: It would be insane.
1: No, most of us can't even imagine what we would do with that kind of money.
0: That's a huge amount of cash.
1: Right. Especially in a lump sum.
0: Yeah. But the family didn't blink. They just got it ready and were willing to pay it to have Bobby back. Oh, absolutely. A second ransom letter postmarked September 29th, 9.30pm was received on September 30th. It started, quote, You must not have got our first letter, and instructed Mr. Greenlease again to place a personal ad in the Kansas Star that read, Meet me in Chicago and sign it with G to signal that the money was ready and that Greenlease was willing to negotiate the release of his son, who is fine, just a little homesick. Oh, that would
1: break your heart.
0: Mm -hmm. This time, the letter was handwritten on linen tablet paper, and inside the envelope was Bobby's metal Jerusalem cross, his prized possession that he had just received for excelling in his schoolwork. The presence of the cross was so important because the Greenleases had received several ransom letters demanding all kinds of different sums and things.
1: (gasps) No. Yeah. Dirtbags out there thought they
0: would take advantage of the situation and try to get their own cut. I am always shocked at just how many dirtbags there are. People had heard of this family's troubles and were hoping to cash in on it.
1: Oh, okay. You are low. Uh Uh-huh. You are a worm of a human being if you do something like that. Taking advantage of a family in their most dire state.
0: Yeah. Virginia had to be under the care of a doctor because she was just a nervous wreck.
1: Oh, I can't even imagine. And he's only six.
0: He's just a baby. Oh. While the second letter confirmed that they were working with the real kidnappers that really had Bobby, it was still really confusing to the family because they had already driven up and down the street to signal that they had got the message. So they were all a little confused about what was going on. And had they placed the ad? They hadn't placed the ad yet because the ad was supposed to be placed as soon as they had the money ready to go. Okay. But they had driven up and down to signal that they had gotten the message. And yet here was this other letter saying that they must not have received their first letter. So the family was completely confused by this. Yeah, that's a little bizarre. Mm -hmm. As a crowd of reporters gathered around the Greenlease estate, Robert updated them and said, quote, we think we are trying to make contact. All I want is my boy back. This was all just the first of many confusing instructions and communications that they would have with their son's captor. After placing the ad, they sat and waited for further instructions. That instruction came almost 24 hours later. A phone call was received at the Greenlease's residence, and a muffled man's voice spoke. It was the first of many calls that would be received. There would have to be three attempts to deliver the ransom money because the first two attempts were so poorly organized and couldn't be completed. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. These dirtbag criminals are not cream of the crop.
1: They're dumb dirtbags. Mm-hmm. But that is adding so much more stress to that family.
0: Yes. Because every time they miss a drop, they're thinking Bobby's going to get hurt. Oh, that would have been pure torment for them. Mm Mm-hmm. Over the course of several days, the kidnappers contacted the Greenleases to relay instructions or clarify instructions during 15 different phone calls and dozens of notes. When the man would call, it was hard to understand. His voice was muffled and his speech was slurred, and he only would identify himself as M. M spoke to several family, friends, and business associates on the phone, and on four different occasions, he spoke directly to Virginia about her son. No. Yep. Virginia would plead for some evidence of her son's well-being. She asked the kidnapper to ask Bobby questions about things that Bobby would know, like who their chauffeur was in Europe, and what did he do his last night at home. The kidnapper would answer these questions by saying that Bobby wouldn't cooperate and tell the answers to their questions. But the kidnapper would talk about how Bobby was talking about his pet parrot and dogs, and would give the family other small tidbits that the boy had shared about his life during his time with his captors.
1: Oh, that is suspicious, though. Mm
0: -hmm. The kidnapper joked that, don't worry, we're earning the ransom because this boy is quite a handful, and that they would be more than happy to give him back, once the money was received, of course.
1: Yeah, you don't get to make jokes like that. You're not funny. That's not clever. Yeah.
0: During the first ransom exchange, tempted on October 3rd, the family was made to follow a series of notes around Kansas City. The kidnapper had made up a wild goose chase for this distraught family, marking rocks with red crayon and hiding notes under mailboxes, all just to torture them a little bit more. Eventually, two family representatives came to the drop spot on a busy corner outside of a church in plain view of a lot of prying eyes the two representatives decided not to return to the site with the money because they figured that they had got the site of the drop wrong. Who in their right mind would leave 600000 in such a public place for anyone to find or accidentally take?
1: Well, and then you run the risk of you put it there, someone else picks it up, and then they're like, you didn't leave the money and you're back to square one.
0: Yeah, they didn't want to take that chance. And they also thought that somebody smart would not make this the drop spot. It was just too easy for anybody to pick up. There were too many people around. This led to a follow-up call from the kidnappers about the missing money and a second attempt being arranged. It really was the drop spot. The kidnappers had just chosen such a poor spot. Wow. The second attempt failed when the kidnapper wasn't able to follow his own instructions and locate the money in a rural area where he had told the family representatives to drop it. The family had to go back and retrieve the money because the kidnapper could not find it. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And when he called and said, hey, where's the money? The family is like, no, this is where we left it. You should go back and get it. The kidnapper refused because he then thought it was a trap.
1: Oh. Meanwhile, you'd be panicked thinking, did someone actually take the money?
0: Exactly. They had to hightail it back to the spot. And luckily, the 600000 was still there in a duffel bag. Oh.
1: This is stressful just to listen to. I cannot even imagine what this family was going through.
0: No, because each time the money came back to the house, Virginia and Robert still didn't have their son. I can only imagine the family's confusion as they tried to do their best to decipher the nonsensical directions given by the kidnapper. They were just madly trying to get back their son, only to be disappointed again and again when they had done everything that they were instructed to do. Yeah,
1: that would be heartbreaking because each time you would be Filled with the hope that, okay, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him.
0: Yes. A third and final attempt was made on October 4th. A call came through early in the morning to the family home and told the representative to wait for another call at 8 that evening. At 8.30, a call came through. The family was told to drive to a hotel whose name the kidnapper couldn't remember, but it had something to do with Shire in it. What? And it was in Kansas City. They were told to wait there for a phone call from the telephone booth.
1: Did they give them an address
0: at least? No. What? Go find the hotel with Shire in its name.
1: And this was before the internet. You couldn't just Google it.
0: No. So Letterman and O'Neill raced around trying to find this hotel. Eventually, they found the Berkshire Hotel and they just, fingers crossed, hoped it was the right one and sat by its telephone booth.
1: Because who knows how many hotels would have had Shire in the name.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Luckily, they had the right hotel. The telephone booth rang at 11.20 p.m. that evening. 35 minutes later, after following, again, the kidnapper's various instructions, the two left the duffel bag at the end of a highway bridge in a heavily wooded area 10 miles east of Kansas City and drove away as instructed. Finally, the drop had been made, but they still weren't done. They received a call from the kidnapper that told them, one last hoop they had to jump through to get Bobby back. What? They had to go to the Western Union telegram office the next morning on Monday, October 5th and wait for instructions that would tell them where to pick Bobby up. The next morning, the two men dutifully went off to the Western Union telegram office, but no telegram arrived. One didn't arrive the day after that either. The family continued to hope against hope and pray that a telegram would come. They relied on their faith but FBI agents who were now involved with the case, the police officers, and even Letterman and O'Neill, who had done all this running around for the family, had lost hope of finding Bobby. Answers to the family's prayer would not come for two more days, and it wouldn't be in the way that they had hoped. No telegram ever came, but some answers came when a cab driver went to police about a suspicious fare he had had. On the evening of October 6th, Police in Saint Louis, Missouri, arrested a man known as Steve, who had been flaunting around a lot of money. John Hager, a cab driver, had picked up this man around three thirty on the fifth. When another cab driver wasn't able to secure him a female companion, Hager, an ex-convict, was not the most reputable sort, and so he had no problem recommending a woman, Sandy O'Day, who he knew for the job. Over the next thirty-six hours, John acted as a personal valet to Steve. And Sandy entertained him in other ways, or at least she attempted to. Steve was often so inebriated that everything didn't always work, according to Sandy. <laughs> While Sandy was entertaining, Hagger, the cab driver, drove Steve to wherever he wanted to go and ran his errands for him, picking up booze and clothing, delivering packages and letters, and securing places to stay. For the cabbie, the gig was a great one. Steve was generous with tips and paid for the three of them to party together. On the evening of October fifth, the three of them—Hager, Sandy, and Steve—all checked in to the Corral Courts Motel in St. Louis. This place was renowned for being the place to stay on Route sixty-six, where no one would ask any questions about anybody else's business. And this is why Hager had chosen it for Steve, because it was pretty clear to him that Steve had something to hide. He was clearly an alcoholic and heavily into morphine, but there was more to his behavior. He was cagey and paranoid and carried around two very large, heavy suitcases with him. Steve asked Hagger to secure him a bogus identity and rent a new car for him, to pick up razors and more travel luggage and clothing, and when he gave these instructions, he always told him, nothing but the best that money could buy.
1: Wow. A seedy character
0: for a seedy place. That's right. Early in their interaction, Hager had thought that Steve might be a cop because he was acting so strangely, and he thought that he might be trying to catch him doing some illegal stuff
1: because he's like no one can be this terrible
0: right so he actually read some of steve's correspondence or letters that he was having him deliver around town and he was able to throw that theory out the window from then on hager wasn't too bothered by steve's behavior as long as his newfound friend kept the booze and the money flowing he was quite happy to go along with him how bad could steve actually be he changed his mind though the next morning when he returned to the motel where he had left Sandy and Steve the night before. When he arrived, he was given instructions to take Sandy to the airport. She was on her way to mail a letter from Los Angeles. When Sandy jumped in the car, she excitedly told Hager about what she had discovered the night before. As Steve had gotten more and more drunk and stoned, he became less protective over his precious suitcases. She told Hager that she had seen thousands in one of the suitcases, maybe even millions. This revelation got Hagger thinking that maybe this wasn't some small-time criminal that he was dealing with, so he consulted his boss on what he should do next. The decision was made that Hagger would turn Steve over to the police, but in a way that ensured that Hagger himself wasn't fingered as a snitch. Hagger returned to the corral court later that day to again serve as Steve's personal valet. While left on his own, Steve had been out running his own errands for a change in his newly acquired car. He had purchased a shovel and a couple of galvanized trash cans. After several hours of driving around, he had returned to the motel just before Hager arrived back at the motel. Keeping up the appearance of being the dutiful valet, Hager accompanied Steve on a clothing shopping spree and then arranged for Steve to move to a rental that he had secured for him at the townhouse hotel just inside the city limits. The rental wasn't supposed to be ready for a couple of days, but Steve had become spooked at Corral Court and insisted that they leave the motel that night. Once settled in the new rental, Hager arranged to leave and notify the police, telling Steve that he would return and knock on the door three times so Steve would know it was him. It was pretty clear at this time that Steve was becoming really paranoid, and this secret knock gave him some confidence. Little did he know that his new best friend was about to turn him in. Shortly after 8 p.m. on October 6, Lieutenant Shoulders and Patrolman Elmer Donnell of the St. Louis Police Department knocked three times on the door.
1: Oh, so then he would know he was double-crossed.
0: But he also would open the door right away to them. Right. Steve was immediately arrested, and his suitcases were confiscated. Hager hadn't made the connection between the Greenlease kidnapping and Steve, but the police certainly did once they had taken him back to the station, and the FBI was called in pretty quickly. It didn't take long for Steve to admit that he was Carl Austin Hall, and that he was, in fact, the person that had kidnapped Bobby Greenlease. Carl was the son of the prominent attorney in Pleasanton, Kansas, and was born on July 1, 1919. His father, John Austin Hall, was a Scottish right Mason, and was regarded as a fine lawyer, but a hard man that fought for justice in all of his affairs. Carl's mother, Zella, was a schoolteacher, but it seemed like she might have been a little standoffish as a mother. Carl had had an older brother, John Austin, who had passed away when Carl was only five. It was rumored that John had been sent away at the age of three because birth difficulties had left him brain damaged. He died when he was away at school at the age of 11. And maybe this was the reason that Zella was guarded with her second son. Maybe she had a fear of attachment to another child. Oh, could be. But it was said that Carl was difficult for his mother to control. By the age of 11, she was paying the local telephone company to hire him as a linesman just to keep him out of her hair.
1: At age 11. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. She thought it would teach him a lesson. Despite this, Carl would later say of his parents, no one could have asked for a finer mother than I had. And the same goes for my father. I had wonderful parents. Their actions were in no way responsible for me going bad. Carl's father, John, died suddenly of a brain tumor in 1932. Just as Carl was entering his teenage years, he did not take his father's passing well. He became so unruly that his mother sent him to live with another couple, hoping the influence of a father figure could bring Carl in line. The woman that Carl went to stay with told friends, though, that Zella was simply too cold-blooded and hard-hearted as a mother to soothe the boy's anxieties. So Hmm. she blamed it all on Zella for Carl's bad behavior. Okay. When Carl's stint with the neighbors ended, his mother shipped him off to Kemper Military College in Boonville, Missouri. At school for the first two years, he actually did quite well. He was an honor student and a member of the rifle, baseball, and basketball teams. His teachers described him as dependable, conscientious, promising, ambitious, honest, and capable. Hmm. In his third year, things started to change. He started drinking, and he developed a chip on his shoulder. Some have suggested that it might have come from the fact that he was no longer the richest man's son. He attended school with Paul Greenlease, whose dad owned all the Cadillac dealerships around. He never had a personal connection with Paul, who was older than him by a few years, but some have suggested that he might have been resentful towards Paul, who was the richest man's son. All because of jealousy. It seems like it. And Paul, we know, is Bobby's older brother. Right. But at this point... Bobby wasn't even alive. Right. But there are some that think that even though Carl would say he never actually had a relationship with Paul, that he kind of became obsessive about the Greenleases and how much money they had. His family was well off, but they weren't extremely wealthy like the Greenleases. Paul had what he wanted. Yeah. If there was resentment, it was soon drowned out, though, in alcohol. And the once bright student started to decline in his academics. Teachers who had once praised Carl now called him untrustworthy as he fell into the party crowd and spent his time getting drunk. Carl eventually had to leave Kemper over his disciplinary problems. They shipped him back to his mother, and he actually did quite well in the public school system in Pleasanton for his senior year. He knew how to party, and it was actually easy for him to fit in and become popular there, because now back in the small town, he is the big dog. Right. And he obviously enjoys being big man on campus. That's right. Right. He graduated high school and flunked at a community college pretty quickly. In 1938, he went into the Marines at his mother's insistence. She's like, you just need to do something with your life. He completed his first tour and re-enlisted as World War II began. Serving, though, didn't change Carl's conduct much. He was thrown into the brig more than once for being AWOL during his drinking bidges. He would be discharged under honorable conditions, which is not quite the same as honorable discharge. It's just slightly below that. Okay, but not dishonorable. Right. And there was a point in Carl's military career where he had been given the rank of sergeant, and then he had it removed, and he was put back down to the corporal rating.
1: Oh, he would not have enjoyed
0: that. No, but it was over him getting drunk. Oh. Yeah. In 1944, his mother, Zella, passed away, and the family inheritance was passed to Carl's grandmother instead of him. And I think that maybe his mother felt like even though Carl was serving in World War II, he still hadn't learned very much about responsibility. Two years later, after he was released from service and his grandmother passed away, Carl inherited his family's fortune. Carl went back to Pleasanton after the war in 1946 to receive this inheritance. After putting on airs around town, pretending to be somebody really important, he sold the family home and over 1,100 acres of fertile farmland as fast as he possibly could and was remembered to have said at the sale of his family home and leaving his hometown, quote, sentiment don't mean a damn thing to me. People got their noses up at me. They're jealous because I got money. I'll show them how money and brains can really get going.
1: Oh my goodness. Sit down, sir.
0: Carl just felt that his little town of Pleasanton was too small for him.
1: When are people going to learn that money doesn't automatically make you important? It just means you have
0: money. Well, for Carl, it meant the world to him.
1: He has got some big insecurity issues. Yeah.
0: Before leaving town, he started an affair with a married woman, Irene Holmes. When her divorce was finalized, he did marry her on July 21st, 1947, for a brief period until 1950, when she decided to up and leave him.
1: And did she take half his money?
0: No. In the four years after receiving his inheritance, he had blown through all of it. What? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) He lost it playing the stock market and invested in two businesses that he was unable to make successful.
1: I'd like to replay for him that little soapbox moment about, I'll show you what brains and money can do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You were missing one part of that equation, honey. Exactly.
0: He had inherited the equivalent of almost $2 million. It should have set him up for life. It should have. Mm Hmm. Dumb, dumb, dumb. So sad. The first business that he had tried his hand at was a crop dusting business. And the second was a liquor store.
1: (laughs) He drank all the profits.
0: Yeah. With the amount he drank, I would have thought, maybe this one's more up your alley. Like he had no idea how to run crop dusting, but maybe the liquor store, he could understand the business a little bit better. But you guessed it. He drank all of his profits. Wow. Irene was sick of his drinking and lies and his disappearing acts. Caro was no good at anything. He couldn't keep a job, and she had had enough of him, so she left. Left to his own devices, Carl tried to support his alcoholism, his growing morphine addiction, and the lifestyle he sought by passing bad checks and stealing. It's really sad because really, he just needs some help. He's got a big issue here, Mm -hmm. and it's controlling his life. It's completely controlling his life. One of the rabbit holes I went down was learning about when treatment for alcoholism started, and it wasn't until the late 1930s, and it wasn't widely accepted still in the 1950s.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: So there wasn't a lot of support for alcoholics. And Carl was clearly an alcoholic.
1: Right, but they wouldn't have understood that it was a disease and he needed help. Right. He's still a dirtbag. His personality is not great, but he obviously had an addiction problem.
0: Very obviously. And it just led him to making really poor decisions. In October of 1951, he was arrested for attempted burglary in Kansas City. He was charged with two counts and served a little over a year in the state penitentiary. He really hadn't learned his lesson, though, because just a little over a month later, on January 29, 1952, he was charged again with another couple of counts of armed robbery of two different cab drivers. This time, he had gotten away with a whole $33 from the cabbies. Ooh! He was sentenced to five years in prison.
1: Hope $33 was worth it. Yeah. So he's five years in prison and that doesn't sober him up.
0: Well, he didn't spend the whole five years there. At the time of his sentencing, Carl's lawyer pleaded with the judge to have a psychiatrist examine him. But the judge just said it's too late for that. What? Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, finally! (laughs) They just didn't have the same understanding back then. Before Carl was paroled in April of 1953, he spent his time discussing with other convicts at the Missouri Penitentiary how to run the best get-rich-quick schemes. He was all about the money. And ransom money seemed like a great idea to him. No, Kidnapping, he argued, was the easiest way to obtain, quote, a great deal of money with the greatest degree of safety. His own safety. He didn't want to be arrested again.
1: Then don't be a dirtbag.
0: Carl mm-hmm. knew the perfect family for this. While he was in prison, he started to obsess over the Greenleafs family.
1: Because it was the only family he knew that had what he didn't.
0: Mm-hmm. When police bring Carl in for questioning on October 6, 1953, he tells them all about his plan to kidnap Bobby Greenlease in between his alcohol and morphine withdrawal. At one point during this interview, he has to be taken to the hospital to receive treatment. And eventually, when the bars reopen again, is given more alcohol to help him get through the interview.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: That's how bad his withdrawal was. Carl would be interviewed several times in the coming days, and his story was not always consistent. Carl admits that when he was released from prison, after serving only 14 months of his five-year term, he was bent on planning the perfect kidnapping of one of the Greenleaf's children. Out of prison, he obtained and quickly lost a job as an auto salesman at Swaffer Motor Company in St. Joseph, Missouri. He then told his parole officer, to which he was supposed to report regularly, that he was working for an insurance company. It was a lie, but it wasn't picked up on. Instead of working, he spent his time at bars drinking his way through bottle after bottle, figuring out the best way to kidnap a child. He was in a bar the night he met Bonnie Hetty in early May 1953. Two days after meeting, he moved in with Bonnie. Apparently, they hit it off really quickly.
1: So she's a dirtbag
0: too. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And by saying that he was sitting on the bar for days contemplating how he was going to pull off this perfect kidnapping just shows that he had opportunity to change his mind. This wasn't a quick idea, and then he went and did it on a whim.
0: Oh, no, not at all. This is back in May when he meets Bonnie.
1: That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Just proves really how deviant he is and how low of a human being.
0: Yeah. And he had found the perfect match with Bonnie. Born Bonnie Emily Brown on July 15, 1912, to French Percy Brown and Mabel Emily Clutter, Bonnie grew up in Claremont, Nodaway County, Missouri. After her mother passed away in 1914, when she was just a toddler, she was sent to live with her Aunt Nellie for a time. Her father remarried in 1915, and I couldn't quite figure out when Bonnie returned to live with him, or even if she actually did, but he was a successful farmer, and Bonnie was said to have been well taken care of. She was remembered by neighbors as having pigtails and was given a dapple pony of her very own to ride around St. Joseph. She was lavished with gifts.
1: She was living every little girl's dream. Mm-hmm. Who didn't want a pony? That's
0: right. In school, Bonnie was clever and was an above-average student in Claremont High School and at Northwest Missouri College, which she attended for short periods of time. On June 8, 1932, Bonnie was married to Vernon Ellis Hetty, a man 10 years her senior. He was a partner in Hedy Fanning Livestock Commission. And I thought to myself, this was probably a pretty good connection for her dad to have. True. The marriage didn't seem like an overly happy one. While those that looked in from the outside saw Bonnie as the attractive wife of a livestock broker that attended square dances and club meetings and raised show dogs happily, others that knew her personally knew that she had her demons. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators. But we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my
1: gosh, how did I forget about food?
0: So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Wish us luck. Come on a journey like no
1: other the Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on
0: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. When Vernon went off to war in February of 1942, Bonnie was said to have become very vain the older she became, and the more she began to drink. She was clearly unhappy in the marriage, and it didn't improve after Vernon returned from the war. Bonnie confided in a friend that she had wanted children in the early years of her marriage, but later began to dislike them intensely. This intense dislike for children was believed to have been brought on by the forced abortions that Vernon had made Bonnie have. It is rumored that 11 times he forced her to rid herself of a wanted child because he himself did not want any. Oh, that's devastating. Mm -hmm. So
1: this was like a defense mechanism for her to then... Decide that she was going to hate children instead. It sounded like it. Where deep down, she was just destroyed. Mm
0: -hmm. It did sound like that.
1: What a dirtbag.
0: Yeah. And it sounded like she turned her attentions more. She started raising show boxers. Oh, It's very sad.
1: Yeah, and 11 times.
0: And abortion was illegal at this time, so they weren't safe.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle even that she didn't die of infection
0: from one of them. Yeah. In 1949, when her father died, he left Bonnie with quite a large inheritance, $44,000 and a $85,000 farm, which she was able to rent out. No longer dependent on her husband for income, she divorced him, citing that he was abusive and that he had been seeing other women. Ugh. There have been publications that stated that Bonnie was married twice prior to meeting Carl, and that her first husband was a mobster that she helped escape from prison, and then was subsequently shot. But I didn't find anything to cooperate that this Bonnie Hetty was ever married to Dan T. Hetty. Pretty much the exact opposite. The timelines just didn't match up for me. I could only find marriage records for Bonnie being married to Vernon.
1: So it's possible that some other sources have her mixed up
0: with a different Bonnie. I believe so, because I did find an indictment that did mention a Bonnie Hetty, but I don't believe it was the same one.
1: The timelines don't match.
0: No, they don't. After the divorce from Vernon, with her inheritance in hand, Bonnie began to live it up. A little too much. People began to notice a very big change in Bonnie's demeanor after she left Vernon. She developed a taste for expensive clothes and drank incessantly. Neighbors started to complain of the wild parties at her home that ran all hours of the night. To keep up with her spending and partying, she began working as a sex worker, picking up men in bars, or paying cab drivers $2 to bring the men to her house. It was very clear that this once clever daddy's girl was spiraling out of control. By the time she met Carl in May of 1953, she was drinking a quart of whiskey a day and arriving drunk at all of her functions. That's
1: a far stretch from the little girl in pigtails riding her pony.
0: Mm -hmm. When Carl moved in with Bonnie, she instantly had a constant drinking companion, one who promised to stick around. It didn't really matter to Bonnie that Carl occasionally knocked her around, because it was nothing that Vernon hadn't done before. For Carl, the arrangement was heaven. Bonnie had the means to take care of him and supply him with a place to stay, and was more than willing to booze and party it up with him.
1: Yeah, she wasn't going to nag him.
0: Nope. Carl told police that when he moved in with Bonnie, he continued making plans for the kidnapping. He would scope out the Greenleases' home and began to call the house, and obtain random bits of information from the family members that would answer. And he would observe the children's daily routines. He would follow Robert as he drove his blue Cadillac with his children. Carl said that sometimes Bonnie would go with him, but because she was so drunk most of the time, she was pretty much unaware of what he was doing. He said she was gullible and would do pretty much anything for one more drink of whiskey. On September 27th, Carl said that's when he filled Bonnie in on his plan to pick Bobby up from school. He needed her to go into the school and collect the child. He was afraid that if he told her before this, she would actually mess things up because she was always so drunk. And he still feared actually that when she went into the school the next day, she might mess up his plans. He had to go into Kratz's drugstore and buy her clarettes when he purchased the chloroform to help her cover the smell of booze on her. It was her routine to drink at least a pint of whiskey before breakfast most days.
1: Whoa. Yeah.
0: Carl told police that while it had always been his plan to kidnap one of the Greenleaf's children, that he needed more help than just Bonnie. And that's where his acquaintance, Thomas Marsh, came in handy. Thomas was an ex-convict that he had met at the keg tavern, and they had hit it off. When Carl told him about his plan to make some quick money, Thomas agreed to help for 100000 Later, Carl would say he actually had to offer him half the ransom. When pressed for details by the police, Carl didn't know anything more about Tom. To cover their tracks better, the two devised a plan that once they had the boy, Thomas would transport the boy in a separate car back to Bonnie's house. And Carl and Bonnie would spend some time around being seen in the shopping plaza. That had been their plan. To give them an alibi. Mm -hmm. But Thomas had gone off the plan according to Carl. After meeting up with Bobby and Bonnie at the Kratz drugstore where the cab had dropped them off, Carl told Bonnie to do some shopping while he took the boy for a ride. He dropped him off with Thomas Marsh and then returned to pick up Bonnie, who was shopping. When the two of them arrived back at Bonnie's house later that night after they had stopped off at their favourite watering hole on the way back to St. Joseph's, Bonnie's house was empty and Thomas Marsh was nowhere to be found. In his original interview with police... Carl claims that Thomas had taken off with Bobby and was responsible for bringing back the child to the Bessie Hotel in Pittsburgh after the ransom was delivered. But then he actually cracks and tells the police that he actually found the little boy's body in Bonnie's basement with a gun underneath of him. The little boy had been shot. Not knowing what to do, Carl admitted that he buried the body in a makeshift grave in Bonnie's backyard using some lime and a shovel that he had purchased to revitalize the soil and plant some tomatoes. So was this right after he had been kidnapped? It was the same night. Oh After burying the body, he decided to stick to his original ransom plan, not knowing what else to do. Over the next few days, in a drunken stupor, with Bonnie tagging along, he contacted the Greenleases from different phones in different establishments in different cities, and gave instructions to collect the ransom, even though he now had no child to give back.
1: Well, and no wonder it was all so
0: jumbled. It was because he was high and drunk all the time. Mm -hmm. He told police that once he collected the money, that he and Bonnie drove straight to St. Louis and he tried to come up with what to do next. It seems that in all of his planning, he had forgotten to plan about what to do after the money was in his hands. The two floundered a little without any luggage or anything packed. He said he couldn't decide on where to stay and at one hotel, Bonnie had made a big scene, and he was fearful that she might draw attention to him. That is what he said to justify leaving Bonnie the next morning on October 5th at the room that he had rented at 5404 Arsenal Street. He said he was fearful that she was going to give him away, that her behavior would be noticed by someone, and that they would be reported. He left her with a note and hid $2,000 in her purse. While she was passed out, he snuck away with the rest of the ransom money. After leaving Bonnie, that is when he had met up with the cabbie.
1: And this is when he gets hooked up with Sandy and now the cabbie has gone to the police and they knock on his door.
0: Right. Ironically, it was his behavior that drew attention to them. His wild spending.
1: Yeah, he should have stayed with Bonnie.
0: Mm -hmm. How rude. But he was saying that it was going to be Bonnie that gave them away.
1: He probably just didn't want to spend any more money on her.
0: Yeah, I don't know what his story was. He later says that he was actually going to go back for her.
1: While you're sleeping with another woman, you're like, "No, oh, I'll go back to Bonnie. Don't worry. Yeah.
0: He, he told the police that the only reason he left her for a short time was to hide the money in a safe place so that she wouldn't, you know, blow it all.
1: It's so safe that the girl he's sleeping with was able to find it. Yep. <laughs>
0: oh, geez. Well, he's passed out. He is not the brightest. But he did have a reason for doing everything. And Carl told that reasoning to the police. He told the police that he chose the amount of ransom he had saying that 600,000 was not so much that he couldn't carry it alone but that it was enough to get him through the rest of his life. He also told police that he had chosen 11 a.m. as the time to send Bonnie to collect the boy because he had figured it would be a time at the school with lots of movement because it was just before lunch and it would provide some extra confusion giving them longer to get away. He also told the police that at some point along the way He had changed up their vehicle by renting a 1952 Ford sedan so that they were less conspicuous. He had decided in his drunken stupor that maybe using Bonnie's car might not be the best choice for them if they wanted to avoid suspicion. (laughs) It is a miracle that they got as far as they did.
1: Yeah, they are a hot mess. Mm -hmm.
0: On and on his admissions went. He admitted that he had been drinking heavily at this point and that he had already taken a quarter of a grain of morphine that day. And that he wasn't really sure where all of the ransom money was, he thought he remembered moving 20 to thirty thousand into a briefcase from the suitcases he had originally put it in, and he may have hid other amounts in different suitcases. But he was sure that minus what he had spent and the money he had given Bonnie, that it all should be there in his rental room.
1: So he obviously didn't give Tommy his cut. No, he hadn't
0: given Tommy his cut. One thing he was adamant about, though, was that he wasn't the one that killed Bobby.
1: No, you did. You put all of this in motion that led to his death. Yeah, even if he wasn't the one to physically pull the trigger. It's because of you that this happened. Exactly.
0: Ah, dirtbag. But there's still more of the truth to come out. Carl knew too many details about the ransom not to be the guy. But police were still suspicious of his story. As soon as he had given them Bonnie's name and where he had left her, they had sent police to arrest her too. They knew for sure that it had been a woman that picked Bobby up from school. Police also started to look for Thomas Marsh, putting out his description to other departments and to the newspapers. Bonnie was in the exact apartment where Carl had left her. She had only left briefly to purchase more whiskey, milk, and a newspaper. She was arrested shortly after midnight on October 7th. When she was questioned by police, she acted dumbfounded but she freely admitted that she had gone to the school to get Bobby, but she didn't know anything about a kidnapping. She told police that Carl had told her that he needed her to pick up his son from his first marriage. That his ex-wife wouldn't let him see the child and that's why he needed her to go into the school because the school would almost certainly have been warned about him by his ex-wife. When she returned with Bobby to the parking lot, as Carl had instructed her to do, he had told her to go shopping and so she had just assumed that he wanted some father-son time alone. When Carl returned alone a couple of hours later, she just figured that he had taken the boy back to school. Her story matched up with Carl's about heading back to St. Joseph's that night, although she did admit that she didn't remember most of the drive. It was the same story she told about their activities the following week. She only remembered small snippets of what the two had done together. She briefly remembered seeing something on the news about the Greenleese's kidnapping, but Carl assured her that the boy was just fine and that she shouldn't worry, so she didn't. She just went back to drinking. Later that afternoon, she remembered picking out some chrysanthemums to plant in a new flower bed that Carl had dug for her. She said she questioned Carl some more about the boy, but Carl refused to talk about it and he'd acted like he was gonna hit her, so she shut up. She said she probably should have gone to the police then, but she was afraid that she would be caught up in something that she didn't really understand. She told police that she had been very happy with Carl and that she wanted to keep him. Because he's such a prize. Mm-hmm. She tells agents during the interview that after she returned from her shopping trip that night, she noticed the big bag of dog food that had been in the back of the car when they returned home had been moved. And so she assumed that Carl had carried it in. She told police that she knew that they had traveled back and forth between Kansas City and St. Joseph's a few times in the days that followed and that there were several times that Carl had acted odd and needed to make more phone calls than normal. Then on Sunday, he had surprised her with an impromptu trip to St. Louis. Bonnie, always in the mood for a little fun, went along for the ride. She made arrangements to put her dogs in kennels and passed out for most of the trip. They arrived early on the morning of October 6th and waited until stores opened to purchase some luggage. Carl had told her that they needed luggage so that they didn't look awkward checking into a motel. She also said that Carl purchased a used red car because he said it was time that he had one of his own. Once they settled into the hotel in the late morning, she spotted the money in the suitcases, but said that when she tried to wake Carl, he didn't answer her. So she too lied down to sleep off some of the alcohol that they had consumed on their way to St. Louis. She had woken up in the apartment on October 5th to find Carl gone and a note left in his stead. It had read, quote, had to move the bags in a hurry a report came in on the radio, girl next door looked funny, couldn't wake you up, so stay here and I'll call when I can. When Carl left, the suitcases also left. She had received another note on the afternoon of the 6th, delivered by a stranger that read, quote, stay where you are, baby, I'll see you in short order. Tell them you're not well, and they'll, the landlady, will bring you food. Just say your husband was called away unexpectedly. During the interview, Bonnie denied knowing anything about a Thomas Marsh. At the end of the interview, Bonnie is asked, is there anything else that she has to say? And she says she has told them all she knows. And then she refuses to sign her statement without consulting her lawyer. She adamantly denied knowing where Bobby was and that he had ever been in her home, but told police that she hoped he was still alive. The confession from these two dirtbags was confusing. But it didn't take a detective's intuition to read between the lines of the two stories given. After over a week of hoping and being promised that their son would be returned unharmed, the Greenleases now learned that their little boy was dead. And had been since the day he was taken from his school. How devastating. They had went through all of that and they couldn't save him. There was no hope right from the very beginning. No, but they would have been desperately grasping at any hope they could. Mm-hmm. The boy's body was found by the FBI agents at 8.40 a.m. on October seventh, 1953. It was buried near a dog run at Bonnie's residence at 1201 South 38th Street in St. Joseph's. His little body was wrapped in blue plastic covered in lime in a three-by-four-foot hole. His body was identified by the family dentist. The heartbreaking news was devastating to the family, and sadly they laid their beloved boy inside the mausoleum at the Forest Hill Cemetery in Kansas City. Bobby's death was also felt by the community at large, who, over the past week, had come to think of Bobby as their own child. His face had been plastered in every newspaper. As police began to uncover evidence at Bonnie's house and started to corroborate Carl's and Bonnie's stories, there was significant legwork that went into tracking Bonnie and Carl's movements and fill in the alcohol-induced blanks that both of them had.
1: Yeah, because you said they were literally drinking while they were driving.
0: Oh, absolutely. There would be times during their interviews that they would be, I think we stopped at this green place for another drink. Oh, And then I passed out for a bit. And then I went here. And so the police had to work really hard to piece all of that together.
1: Which makes sense now why they said it was a hotel
0: that had the word Shire in it. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even remember their own instructions. Ugh. And I would like to think that the amount of work that went into this to track their whereabouts was all about Bobby and delivering truth and justice for the family. But after reading all the investigative notes and the questioning that the FBI took on this case, it seems pretty clear to me that it was more about tracking the ransom money. Really? Mm-hmm. It's pretty sad. That's despicable. Mm hmm. And maybe it was that way because they knew right from pretty much interview one that Bobby was already dead.
1: That's true. So now their next focus was to retrieve that money. Right. Okay.
0: But it did seem like more of the focus was not let's get justice for Bobby, but now we need to find out where all the money was. Whatever the police motives, though, it became very apparent that the two were not telling the whole truth. Carl's purchases of a gun... Lime and a shovel were made long before the 28th of September. When police searched Bonnie's home, they found blood stains from the kitchen to the dining room and then to the back door. There was also blood on cushions and a quilt found in a dining room. And damningly, there was evidence of bullets being fired in Bonnie's car. Plus, one of the things that detectives pointed out over and over again about Carl's story was who plants tomatoes in the fall. Oh, true. Yeah. Nobody. No. FBI agents head back to the interrogation room with both Carl and Bonnie. When Bonnie is brought back in for questioning, the agents lay out the case for her, and she knows her goose is cooked. She was the smart one of the operation after all. In a shocking twist that the FBI agents didn't see coming, Bonnie confessed she was fully aware of the plan to kidnap and murder Bobby from the very start.
1: Oh, I was hoping she was telling the truth. I didn't no. want her to be a dirt pig.
0: She made herself out to sound like this innocent victim, and the agents were shocked to learn that she had actively participated. Wow. It just seems so much more shocking when a woman would do that to a child. So true. Mm -hmm. Carla told her that he had thought of nothing else but kidnapping since being in the state penitentiary. When presented with the plan to kidnap one of the Greenleaf's children for ransom, She and Carl had discussed the matter in great detail and decided that it was better to take Bobby than Virginia Sue. He was smaller and would be easier to subdue. In Carl's room, the agents let on that Bonnie had turned on him and told them the whole truth, that he had killed Bobby. Carl then blurts out, it's true, it's true. Police learn that the deadly duo had decided early on that they would have to murder the child because he would be able to later identify them. Him staying alive would put their own freedom at risk. They had originally thought of dumping the body in the river, but decided against it because it might float. That's how they came to the conclusion that they would have to bury the body. The two had actually dug his grave on September
1: 27th.
0: In all of their planning, they had figured that Bonnie's backyard was the safest place. Yeah. They're not smart. Mind you, a lot of
1: people do bury Mm -hmm. their victims in their backyard.
0: When the cab had dropped off Bonnie and Bobby back at the Kratz drugstore, the two were quickly picked up by Carl, who had been hiding at the back end of the parking lot. Tucked into the middle of the front seat between them, the young boy had chattered on to his captors, unaware that he was in any danger. Bonnie said that he was a happy and bright little boy that just thought he was going for a ride with them, and so he raised no objections at all.
1: Oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm.
0: It just makes them so much more of dirtbags. Yeah, it's awful. It's like a little lamb to the slaughter. Mm -hmm. They drove him out to the Kansas City limits along a side road near a secluded farm off of Highway 69. When they pulled over, Bonnie got out of the car with her dog, Doc, and took him for a walk, knowing full well that Carl intended to kill the boy. In a sickening voice, she told police that she had actually brought Doc along to keep the boy calm during the car ride. Carl, alone in the car with Bobby, tried to strangle him with some clothesline. But the piece he had brought with him was too small to get around the boy's neck and get a good grip with his own hands. So he took out his thirty-eight caliber handgun. After punching the now terrified boy in the face and knocking out his front teeth, he pushed him to the floor of the car and shot at him. He was drunk at the time that he did this. His first shot that he aimed at the boy's chest missed, and it lodged into the car floorboards. With the second shot, he hit the boy in the right side of the back of his head. He was shot, this time, from point-blank range so that Carl wouldn't miss. When Bonnie heard the two shots, she was shocked because she thought Carl was strangling the boy. And she turned around and actually lost her hat on her walk back with Doc. By the time that she returned, Carl had the boy's body wrapped in the sheet of blue plastic that she used to protect the car when she traveled with her dogs to shows. She helped Carl move the body into the back seat and then placed her dog in the second seat. Aww.
1: Just like taking cargo. Mm -hmm. Not a big deal. Just set your dog down right beside him.
0: Yeah. On the way home, they stopped at their favorite watering hole, Lynn's Tavern, and left the dog and Bobby in the car.
1: What? Mm -hmm. Just laying in the back seat?
0: Yes. (gasps) He was wrapped in blue plastic, but they just left him there. And the dog
1: could have unraveled
0: him. Yep. They just needed a drink that bad. They did. The pair returned to St. Joseph's that evening and half buried the body by covering it with only six inches of dirt and lime. Carl was just too excited to send the first ransom note that he couldn't even finish the job that night. Oh my gosh, these people are terrible. It was Bonnie that had prepared the first two ransom notes and the instructions for the first drop attempt that the Greenleases had received. When Carl returned that night, he cleaned up the blood that he could see in the house and the car, and then he drank the rest of the night. He didn't finish filling in the grave until the next day. That's when he and Bonnie had purchased the flowers to hide the freshly turned dirt by the trellis. When Carl realized that he had sent the first letter with the wrong address, he sent a second note very quickly. He hadn't bothered to even try and watch to see if the green laces had driven up and down the road as he instructed them to do. He wasn't even in the same town as them. So he had them doing these crazy things and he didn't even care. He was just more worried about getting his drink on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They had sent this family on a crazy goose chase, giving them false hope, when the whole time he knew, there was no hope at all.
1: And there was no plan
0: of there being hope. No. They had planned to kill Bobby within an hour of picking him up. Ugh. When the two collected the ransom money, they celebrated by stopping at several bars. They arrived in St. Louis between 6 and 7 a.m. on October 5th. They purchased two new suitcases, one, a green metal footlocker one and a black larger metal suitcase, and filled them to the top, so much so that they actually had to remove the top tray in one of the suitcases. They stopped along a back alley and placed the duffel bag in a nearby garbage, along with the rope that had been tied around the money. While they were disposing of these things on Wyoming Street, a couple witnessed them do this, and were later able to identify them and the suitcases that they saw. Oh. Carl then contacted his lawyer to ask his lawyer if he would destroy the rental agreement for the previously rented car, which is just crazy. He tried to talk his lawyer into covering up part of the evidence.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Carl then purchased a used car, a red 1947 four-door Nash, for $450. The whole time that he was at the dealership, Bonnie was across the street with the suitcases drinking at Columbo's Bar. Carl wouldn't take his eyes off her. He was afraid that Bonnie was going to do something to ruin things for them. They tried to stay at a hotel that morning, but the two made such a spectacle of themselves in the lobby because they were drunk and arguing and throwing punches that they were less than inconspicuous. Bonnie was mad that he had settled for a used car and said they deserved to have a brand new one. Trying to keep a low profile, the couple had then decided that it would be best to rent the apartment at 5404 Arsenal Street. Once inside the apartment, Bonnie had drank even more and passed out. Carl used this opportunity to flee with the money. He would tell police that he left to find a place to hide the money from her. That's what he had been doing the afternoon on October 6th just before the cabbie turned him over to police. Carl had spent the afternoon getting supplies and driving around for almost 80 miles trying to find a suitable place to hide the money so that it would be safe from Bonnie. Little had he known, though, that it was his own behavior and flashing the money around that would lead to their arrest. After leaving Bonnie, he ditched his newly purchased car. And I wonder if he did this because Bonnie could identify him in it. As a final measure of wrapping up his affairs, he sent his lawyer a payment of four to $500, he couldn't remember exactly how much, for getting him out on parole.
1: Oh, like, thanks, buddy. You did me a solid
0: because look where I am now. Here's your tip. Carl now confessed that there was never a Thomas Marsh, that all the tips that were now being called in and followed up on were all red herrings. It had only ever been him and Bonnie. I was wondering where Thomas was in this picture. There was a convict named Thomas Marsh, and there was this wild goose chase, and people were seeing him everywhere. But it was all just false leads that Carl had police chasing. Carl also told police that to the best of his knowledge, all the money should be accounted for when they kept asking him about it. Both Carl and Bonnie were taken back to Kansas on October 14th to stand trial. At a hearing on October 30th, 1953, Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty both pleaded guilty to the kidnapping and killing of Bobby. On November 19th, the jury of 12 men, nine of them fathers themselves, listened to the evidence and recommended the death penalty. In just a little over an hour of deliberation. The jurors would later say that the death penalty for Carl was decided within a matter of minutes, but one juror needed some more convincing that Bonnie should join him. The judge signed off on the sentence, saying, quote, I think the verdict fits the evidence. It is the most cold blooded, brutal murder I have ever tried. And the judge was 80 years old at this time.
1: Whoa, so he had tried a lot of cases.
0: Mm-hmm. After learning of the sentencing, Robert Greenlee said, quote, it's too good for them, but it's the best the law provides. Oh, it's true, though. Mm-hmm. Virginia Greenlee said, quote, My feeling about capital punishment makes no difference. There isn't any form of death that can begin to compare to the suffering my husband and I have endured since Bobby was taken, much less what Bobby endured. Both Carl and Bonnie declined any attempt at appeals. Prior to her execution date, Bonnie requested a list of clothes and cosmetics so that she could look her best for her execution. After all, as she had said, it's not every day a girl gets to be executed next to the man she loves. What? On the day of the execution, Carl wore a green shirt and Bonnie wore a green dress. They had 30 minutes to visit prior to their execution. They appeared happy and eager to see each other. They shared their last meal of fried chicken together. On the way to the death chamber, both said thank you to their captors. The murderous couple were executed together in the gas chamber in Jefferson City, Missouri on December 18th, 1953, dying less than three months after killing Bobby. Oh, that was quick. But honestly, I'm not sure
1: how I feel about them being allowed to spend their last times together and they got to die with one another. Little Bobby had to die all by himself with nobody around him that cared for him.
0: It seems so wrong.
1: It does. He had to die at the hand of literal monsters. hmm
0: And the Missouri authorities actually had to install a second chair in the gas chamber so Carl and Bonnie could be executed simultaneously.
1: Right. And they get to dress up in matching outfits and try to make this all romantic? No, you're dirtbags.
0: You yeah. murdered a little boy. It just seems like a mercy that they didn't deserve. hmm Bonnie was the only woman to ever be executed in that gas chamber. It's said that she had chirped on cheerfully as she was led into the gas chamber and while she was being strapped in, until Carl finally told her to be quiet. The chamber was sealed at 12.04 and cyanide pellets were released and the deadly gas rose in a white cloud. Carl, at 34, stopped breathing at 12.12, and Bonnie, at 41 years old, took her last breath at 12.14, according to the blackboard kept by their observers standing just outside the gas chamber. After the two were executed, a lot of rumors still flew about the ransom that they had collected. That's because only $296,280 was ever accounted for.
1: (gasps) I knew that the full amount wouldn't have been there because they had been doing
0: some spending, but there's no way they spent that much. Over half of it was missing. Amidst the widespread rage at the murder of Bobby, there was an immediate investigation into the missing ransom money. There was a very lengthy investigation. And on October 26, 1953, a 40-page booklet containing every serial number from the 13,401 dollars bills and the 3,570 dollars bills that were unrecovered was made public in an effort to track down the missing money. Wiretaps were also run on police and FBI agents for years, and for years serial numbers of 10 and 20 bills were tracked. Just before going to the gas chamber, Carl made the statement, quote, Realizing that my execution for the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Greenlease is near at hand, I am giving this statement as being exactly the truth of my handling of the ransom money in St. Louis. I feel sure that all of the money was with me at the townhouse at the time of my arrest. I could see the keys on the bureau in the closet after Lieutenant Shoulders had taken them from me. There was a light on in the closet, and I could see the keys as I left the apartment with the police. I was the last to leave the apartment. I have given the above statement freely and voluntarily, knowing that my death is near and at hand, and being very anxious to tell the entire truth about this matter. What? Lieutenant Shoulders and Officer Dolan, the two police involved in arresting Carl, were later convicted in federal court on the charge of perjury for supposedly lying about the sequence of events from the time that they had arrested Carl until the time that the money was brought into the Newstead police station and counted. Various police clerks and police officers testified that they had seen Lieutenant Shoulders and Dolan when they entered the police station with Carl and that they did not see the men carrying anything Lieutenant Shoulders said that the money was outside in the car and then he brought it into the station after bringing Carl in. The official theory is that Lieutenant Shoulders and Dolan, who both left the station on what they said were personal errands after bringing Carl in, returned to the townhouse apartments, stole half the money, and then brought the remaining half into the police station through the rear door. Carl's statement, of course, directly contradicted what Shoulders and Dolan had said. Because Carl said that the money was left behind in the apartment when they had taken him in. The best theory, or maybe just the one that sounds the most sensational, I guess, is that the cabbie that acted as Carl's personal valet for the two days worked for the notorious mob boss, Joe Costello. And that Costello and Lieutenant Shoulders were buddy-buddy. They had actually driven cabs together when they were younger. When the cabbie went to his boss about the guy with all the money... Costello told his cop friend so that they could split it. No. Mm -hmm. This story was flamed in 1962 when Officer Dolan said that he had purposely perjured himself because Shoulders and Costello had stolen the other half of the ransom money. He only came forward after both of those men had died. President Lyndon B. Johnson pardoned Dolan after he admitted to perjuring himself out of fear of Shoulders, according to the St. Louis True Crime Report.
1: So they didn't even cut him
0: in? Nope. But still to this day, $300,000, or the equivalent to almost $3.5 has never been accounted for.
1: Dirty dogs. Mm-hmm. What a way to take advantage of a horrible, awful situation. Then you're going to steal from this poor family who has just been put through the most horrible thing a parent can experience. Gross.
0: They were dirtbags themselves. Huge dirtbags. Mm-hmm. There are some people that don't believe that theory and point out that... Really, Carl had bought a shovel and some garbage cans. Maybe he did actually bury the money, and it's somewhere within an 80-mile radius of St. Louis still today.
1: $3.5 million.
0: Yeah, but most believe that it was the two that took it.
1: Well, and you would think since the 50s that there has been enough building and things going on that it would have been found by now.
0: Yeah, considering how he buried a body, I doubt he'd buried the money any better.
1: No, it's true. Yeah. And what are the chances that that officer on the scene had ties to the cabbie's boss, who was a mobster?
0: Yeah. It's
1: all too perfect.
0: But that is the case of the dim-witted, drunken dirtbag duo who kidnapped and then cold-bloodedly murdered an innocent six-year-old boy, Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty.
1: Wow. Good riddance to those two dirtbags.
0: Their anatomist just infuriated me.
1: They were so sloppy and...
0: So vile at the same time. And I completely 100% agree with you that they should not have been able to die together. No,
1: it made it sound
0: so romanticized. Mm-hmm. They had done such awful things to the Greenlease family. And the Greenleases never really recovered from their loss of their sweet Bobby. How could they? No, but they didn't let it ruin their commitment to serving others, which I think is such an honorable thing. Both Robert and Virginia and their remaining two children went on to spend the rest of their lives serving and giving in their community. Wow. I just thought it was such a tribute to Bobby's memory that they continued to be generous when they had every right to be bitter. Oh,
1: absolutely. They were the complete opposite to Mm. Carl and Bonnie and whoever took that money.
0: Yeah, whoever
1: it is. While that case had so many twists and turns that I didn't see coming, I honestly thought Thomas was a real person.
0: No, well, he was real. He just wasn't one of the dirtbags in this case. True. And next
1: week, I will be bringing you a case about two more dirtbags. So I hope you'll join us.
0: Until then. See ya. Bye. Hear me, all the people.
1: What was that? Is that a Verizon commercial? Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. He's like walking everywhere. Can, can you, you hear, hear me, me now? now? <laughs> you guys, can you hear us? <laughs> and I like how you said, coming r- from me. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's okay <laughs> coming from my demon friend, Christy. <laughs>
0: That's not what I meant. It just, it doesn't, Oops. it doesn't roll for me. Oh. It's like, I, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> no, not for me. Oh. Yeah, we'll go with that. You never know where love is going to happen, Christy. What would you do with that much money? Oh, Would you just lay it out and roll in it? Yes. I'd just fan myself. I'd get naked first and then I'd roll all around it. I touched it. It's all mine. That's right.
1: If you lick something, then it's yours. What happens when you do put your naked butt on it? Then it's for sure yours.
0: Do you recognize that county? No. Should I? Yes, because that's the county where Lisa Mount Montgomery was tried and sentenced to death.
1: Oh no, I did not make that connection immediately. Yes, oh, that was a terrible case too. What's going on in that county? I don't know. There's <laughs> something in the water. After leaving, sorry, I just have a question. Don't put yeah. this in here, but what happened to the other guy, Tom? We'll, we'll get there.
0: Okay, yeah. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Now end it off, Christy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>